Well, I have a hard job this morning because it's uh, early and uh, we're all sleepy. And so I'm going to move quickly and I'm going to have you go lots of places with me. Rather than staying in one place, we're going to go lots of places uh, in the Bible. So I, I would like you to follow along. And hopefully that'll help, uh, help us stay awake and alert. I'm talking this morning about counseling as pastoral care. And I want to talk about um, kind of the big picture of counseling. The first thing I want to say about pastoral counseling uh, is something that anyone who has ever done it knows as a fact. The first thing I need to say is that for most of us, pastoral counseling is the most spiritually difficult aspect of ministry. For most of us. Acts 20, 31 Therefore, be on the alert. This is Paul talking to the Ephesian elders. I know that this passage is going to come up over and over again today. Acts 20. But Paul says to the elders in Ephesus, Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with what? With tears. Night and day. Unceasing tears. It's the most difficult work. 2 Corinthians 11, the passage that uh, Pastor Bailey preached from last night. There's that that section at the end of 11, uh, verse 22 and on, where he says this. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I am more so. In far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then he says this, apart from such external things, you know, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? That is, is not just the icing on the cake of his sufferings, that's, that's the cake. His intense concern for the churches. Pastoral counseling is difficult work. It puts us in direct contact with the most difficult, depressing situations. And that's why we often make excuses for not doing it. We would rather sit in our studies with our books and our computers. And so we construct for ourselves pious-sounding excuses. You know, uh, God says, preach the word, not counsel the word. If I preach well enough, people won't need counseling. I've known pastors who have said to people who come to them for counseling, you know what, just come to my church for a month or two and listen to the sermons, and after that, you won't need counseling anymore. We come up with high-sounding excuses, but the bottom line is we don't want to spend time and energy meeting with people one-on-one because it's difficult. It's draining. It's depressing. But there's a problem with that. The problem with this attitude is, is this. This is my second point. Pastoral counseling is not optional. You are a pastor, a shepherd. We tend to make pastor entirely synonymous with preacher. But pastor is not entirely synonymous with preacher. But that is the modern idea. The modern idea is that the pastor is really mainly the preacher. The ministry of the word is mainly public. The most important thing in the pastor's week is the production and delivery of a sermon. And each sermon 
is an intricately crafted, well-rehearsed masterpiece, and that's the main part of his work. Now, I am intense about the importance of preaching the word. There is no substitute for it. God has chosen to save sinners by the preaching of his word. Romans 10, 13, just listen. Whoever will, call upon the, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? Or 1 Corinthians 1.21 For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Or 1 Peter 1 you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. God saves people through the word preached. Absolutely. That's why Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. So yes, preaching the word is central to pastoral ministry, but pastoring is much, much more than preaching. To be a pastor is to be a shepherd. And what do shepherds do? They work personally, individually, particularly, intimately with sheep. And that can never be done adequately from the pulpit alone. So Peter tells the elders in 1 Peter 5, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you. Shepherd the flock of God among you. So there is a common misperception that we must always work to correct. The misperception is that counselors and pastors are two different animals. That counselors are sensitive and soft and understanding, while pastors are hard-nosed, insensitive, strong, unfeeling. And so building on this misconception, men who fancy themselves counselors often feel superior to preachers. And if you're in a church staff that has multiple pastors and one of them tends to do a lot of pastoral counseling, you have a serious potential problem on your hands. Very similar to the problem that we saw in 1 Corinthians last night of division surrounding personalities. And the problem is that the counselor cultivates an identity as the counselor, the one who knows the one who is sensitive, the understanding one, the one who really knows what the sheep need to be fed. And so there can be a division in the church surrounding these two different pastors, and we need to head that off at the pass long before it even begins to happen. Now, how do you do that? We need to head it off by insisting that the heart of the pastoral ministry is shepherding. Shepherding is the heart of the pastoral ministry. No matter what your emphasis is, shepherding is the heart of pastoral ministry. Preachers need to counsel and counselors need to preach. We shouldn't allow our pastors to be so rigidly divided into either preacher or counselor because to be a pastor is to be both. And so yes, pastoral counseling is difficult, but pastoral counseling is of the essence of pastoral ministry. And if you refuse to do pastoral counseling, you refuse to pastor. Now, what do I mean by pastoral counseling? I'm going to spend the rest of the time talking about that. What is it? 
What is it not? What does it assume? What does it require of us? So what is it? Pastoral counseling is simply the private ministry of the word. The private ministry of the word. God commands pastors and elders to do both public and private ministry of the word. The public ministry of the word is preaching and teaching. The private ministry of the word is what I'm calling pastoral counseling. Now, where do we see that distinction? Again, you see it in Acts 20, verses 18 to 21. And when they had come to him, he said to them, to the elders, you yourselves know, this is Paul speaking, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't just a public square preacher. He ministered, he shepherded from house to house, day and night with tears. But even if that wasn't there, there are all kinds of things that Scripture commands us to do that we can't do from the pulpit alone. Just a couple of examples. Galatians 6.1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. That doesn't make sense if, it's, if all that our work is is preaching. Or 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters in all purity. That, that verse, those verses assumes that the pastor is moving around, dealing individually with individuals in the flock. And so pastoral counseling is the private ministry of the word. We don't just preach the word, we counsel the word. So in other words, just like preaching is the proclamation and application of the Bible to groups of people, Counseling is the proclamation and application of the Bible to individual people and, and families and couples. Private, personal, intense, practical, particular. Now, what is pastoral counseling not? Pastoral counseling is not therapy. Our problem is that we're so steeped in a therapeutic culture that we automatically think of pastoral counseling as therapy. What do, we, what do you think of when you hear the word therapy? Oh yeah, you think of the couch. The detached, interested science, scientist, you know, with, with the notebook. German accent. Or in a German accent. You think... Medical, you think mental health, right? You think addictions, psychotherapy, healing. The therapeutic world we live in imposes certain assumptions about pastoral counseling that we have and our people have. And the whole idea of therapy is medical. It sets up a system that prevents a pastor from ministering the word. The therapeutic model of counseling has all but destroyed pastoral counseling. Almost totally destroyed it. It has destroyed pastoral counseling because it sets the tone and the agenda and the framework of what we think of as counseling. When you hear the word counseling, you think therapist. When our people hear the word counseling, they think, yes, I've got to make an appointment with the professional and get therapy. That's what they think. And the heart of the therapeutic model of counseling is the idea that you are not responsible for anything. That's the whole point of therapy. Your problems not your sins, but your problems, are the result of your genetics or the way other people have treated you. You're off the hook. 
you're a victim, you're not responsible, you're certainly not guilty. And in the therapeutic model, you pay a therapist to have a private relationship with you for an hour a week. You have clients or patients who pay an hourly fee to meet with the therapist. And the job of the therapist is to offer objective, scientific, value-neutral observations. Technical expertise. This is how one psychiatrist puts it in the Harvard Guide to Psychiatry. This is, this is what they're working with. This is their assumption. He says this, the therapist will not impose or otherwise induce his personal values on the patient. The exploration and acquisition of more constructive and less neurotically determined values is conducted without ethical or moral pressure or suasions of any kind. That's what they mean by therapy. That's what our people think when they hear, hear the word counseling. And so the patient pays to go to the expert just like a patient pays to go to the medical doctor. In fact, our culture sees them as exactly the same thing. The medical doctor and the therapist are essentially the same thing. And the problem is that counseling is not like medical doctoring. Counseling is pastoring. Counseling is discipling. Counseling must be directive. No, you're wrong. You can't do that. You can't say that. You can't think like that. You need to do this instead. And so if you see yourself as a therapist, then you cannot be a pastor. Counseling is all about ethical and moral pressure. If you're the interested but detached scientist who listens and reflects and observes and kind of just feeds back what you just said, you know, that's what they do. They, Dr. So-and-so, I, I'm, really, I'm really angry at my wife. Oh, You must be angry at your wife. <laughs> yes, and, and sometimes I, I hit her with the, with the lamp. Oh, you must hit her with the lamp. <laughs> what? <laughs> Is it a big lamp or a small lamp? Who picks, up the, who picks up the pieces after it's broken? That's interesting. If you are the interested but detached scientist who listens and reflects and observes but never gets angry or excited or intense or persuasive, who never pleads or exhorts or cries, then you are not a pastor. You're a therapist. And therefore, you're useless. Because a pastor, a shepherd, uses every tool in his toolbox, including his own sorrow and anger and love and shock and zeal and hope. And you see this all through the New Testament. Now turn with me to Galatians 4. Look at what Paul actually does. Look at what he says. Look at what he appeals to. Galatians 4.12 to 20. I beg of you, brethren. Now, does that sound detached? <laughs> I beg of you, brethren. Become as I am. Why are you bringing yourself into this, Paul? For I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as, Jesus, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? 
For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, the Judaizers, his enemies. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner and not only when I am present with you. My children... with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Look at what he does. He begs. He brings in the the personal history. He brings in the past love that he shared with the Galatians. He uses ad hominem attacks against the Judaizers right? You shouldn't listen to them because I know what they really want. Their arguments are wrong because I know what they want. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. He says he's perplexed about them. He uses his desires, his pain, his hurt as a lever to get them to move. He even goes so far as to say, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. You can't get any more personal than that or, or more intense than that. And that's the opposite of what our people expect. If we allow their expectations to be shaped by the whole idea of therapy. Look at another example of this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, he's appealing to personal history and personal knowledge, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Look how how much he's talking about himself. He's putting himself on the line. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses. And so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly, blamelessly we behaved among, toward you believers. Just as you know, how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you, as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Again, that is intense. And it's personal. It's intensely personal. This is not a therapist, detached, cold, clinical, dispensing psychological advice for pay. This is a pastor. And again, he uses every trick in the book. He even talks about himself. His whole point of appeal is actually himself. You remember what I was like. Remember how we behaved among you. Remember how we suffered for you. Remember how I didn't just share truth with you, I shared my very life with you. Remember how I was like a mother with you, caring for you tenderly. Remember how I was like a father with you, exhorting and encouraging and and imploring each one of you, he says. Each one. 
individually, like a father would his own children. This is no therapist, this is no professional, this is a shepherd, and everything is at stake personally with him. He cares what happens with these sheep. And they know it. I was in a counseling situation once early on in my time here in Bloomington, sitting in my office over at that old, uh, the old building on Morton Street. This old, it always reminded me of a gas station, but it was, a, it was an old metal shop. I'm sitting in, there in this office with this couple, and the man, they're just recently married, the man is, uh, let's just say he's angry all the time. <laughs> and he's driving in his car with his wife, and uh, they get in a fight, and he tells her to get out of the car. And she doesn't get out of the car. I mean, there's, you know, they're, they're not in their driveway. <laughs> you know, they're somewhere. And she doesn't get out of her car. So he goes, gets out of the car, opens the trunk, gets out a screwdriver, and threatens to stab her with it if she doesn't get out of the car. And they're sitting here in my office. I mean, that's just one thing. And of course, there's all kinds of things going on. One of them is pornography and lust with this man. And so I say to him, why don't you turn, I want you to turn to uh, uh, Proverbs 5. And I want you to read that to me, the end of Proverbs 5, which talks about adultery and uh, you know, loving your wife. He's sitting there right there, no farther than David is from me right now. I said, would you turn to Proverbs 5? And he says, no. Now, what would you do? <laughs> Get a screwdriver out of the trunk. <laughs> well, I hadn't thought of that. <clears throat> So what did I do? I said, leave. Get out of here. I mean, I was, I was so mad at him. What would a therapist have done? Oh, well, that's interesting. You don't want to read Proverbs 5. Oh. Well, here, let me read it for you. <laughs> no. Intense emotional investment. Anger. So pastoral counseling is not a science, and it's never neutral, and it can never be surgically separated from the counselor, the pastor. Paul never separates himself He's never neutral, he's never unbiased, he's never passive, he's never indifferent. Everything's at stake. And he brings it all to bear. Pastoral counseling involves blood and sweat and tears. It requires that we roll up our sleeves and get dirty. So that's what pastoral counseling is and is not. It's not therapy, it's not detached, it's not impersonal. It is personal, it is shepherding, it is the private, personal, intense ministry of the word. Lives and souls are at stake. Now, if that is what pastoral counseling is, then what does it assume and what does it require of us? And these things should just be obvious to us. Here's what it assumes. First of all, it assumes sin. Obviously, the need for pastoral counseling arises from the reality of sin in the life of Christians. Christians sin. Christians who have a new heart, who have in fact been born again, who have the Holy Spirit, still struggle with serious sin. Don't ever be surprised by sin in a Christian. But pastors are always surprised, aren't we? We cultivate 
ignorance. And so we're surprised that there are sinners in our churches. If Christians are automatically done with sin, then why is the Bible filled with commands to Christians to stop sinning? The nature of the Christian life is warfare. Warfare, yes, against the world and the devil, but primarily against the flesh. The context for all of our counseling is the ongoing fight that Christians have with sin. The context is the reality of progressive sanctification. And so pastoral counseling is a process because sanctification is a process. It's a process, not an event. It's hard work. It's not automatic. So counseling assumes sin. Secondly, pastoral counseling assumes the possibility of obedience, the possibility of change, the possibility of growth in godliness. Because if obedience is not possible, then why bother? Why bother? But obedience is possible. We must bother because the Holy Spirit is at work in Christians. He is at work to conform us to the image of Christ. We all know what Philippians 2 says. Right? So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But sanctification, growing in practical holiness and obedience, does not come as we let go and let God. It is not the result of passivity, it's the result of sweat and work and effort. Romans 8, 12 and 13. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That is not automatic. That is not the result of being passive and letting go and letting God. You're killing something. By the Holy Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body. So pastoral counseling assumes two realities. On the one hand, we expect Christians to sin. On the other hand, we expect the Holy Spirit to work. If you don't have those two expectations, you won't do pastoral counseling. Because you'll be shocked and amazed when you see Christians sinning, and you'll think, oh, I can't handle that. We better refer him to the therapist. Or if you don't have any hope of the Holy Spirit working in them, you won't bother. But remember this. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 brings both of these realities together. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And if there is no progress in obedience, if there is no progress in practical holiness, there is no salvation. Because Hebrews 12.14 says, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So pastoral counseling assumes that Christians sin and that the Holy Spirit works. But it assumes one more thing. Pastoral counseling assumes that the pastor has authority. He has authority to reprove and rebuke and exhort and implore and command. And if you think that you have no authority as a pastor, then you will be completely ineffective as a counselor. There are times when a, when a pastor, when it is right to suggest, when it's right to simply recommend. But there are many, many, many more times when a pastor must reprove and rebuke and exhort and implore and command. Those are the words that Scripture uses for our work. But you'll never do any of that if you think of yourself as a therapist. 
So pastoral counseling assumes three things. Sin in, in Christians, the reality of the work of the Holy Spirit, the authority of the pastor. Now finally, what does pastoral counseling require of us? Quickly. Number one, pastoral counseling requires that you know the sheep. That's obvious, right? We have to know the sheep. How can you be a shepherd if you are aloof from your sheep? How can you be a pastor if you're just a preacher? Brothers, get to know your sheep. If you don't, how will you know how to handle them? Scripture always assumes that the pastors know how to handle different types of sheep. For example, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Different kinds of people require different methods of handling them, of dealing with them, of ministering to them. It says, be patient with everyone. We have to know the sheep. We have to know what that man, that woman needs. Secondly, pastoral counseling requires that you love the sheep. Remember those words that I read a minute ago from Paul, 1 Thessalonians 2. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her children, having so fond an affection for you, sharing not just the gospel but our own lives, you had become very dear to us. As a father would his own children. Acts 20. I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. That's love. We must love our sheep. Third, pastoral counseling requires that you ask hard but obvious questions. Brothers, we all know this. Ignorance is bliss. And because... Pastoral counseling, as I said at the beginning, is so difficult, so draining, so often depressing and discouraging. We cultivate ignorance. We know what's under there. If you just peel back the corner just a little bit, we know what we're going to find. So we don't peel back the corner. There are no corners to peel back. We cultivate ignorance. We honestly don't want to know. Ignorance is bliss, but for a pastor, ignorance is wicked. We don't want to see. We don't want to see the hollow eyes of the wife. We don't want to see the shifty eyes of the husband. We don't want to see... How the young woman who's been coming to church for a few weeks now won't ever look you in the eye. We don't want to see how the, the young teenager disrespects his mother with his father sitting right next to him. We don't want to see how often the man is away on business alone. We don't want to see how the couple sits together in church and observe just the obvious. We don't want to see it. Because we know that if we see it, we know that we have to do something. But a pastor has to see. And so we have to cultivate the ability to see the obvious and to ask the obvious but difficult questions. So, were you molested? How often do you look at pornography? When was the last time you had sex with your wife or your husband? Did you enjoy it? Ignorance is bliss, isn't it? It's hard for us to really believe this, but our people expect us to ask the most painful questions. They really do. If we train them to expect it. 
they will, their expectations of us will be shaped by our expectations of them. And so if it's perfectly normal and, and natural for us to ask those kinds of questions, it will be perfectly normal, normal and natural for them to actually answer them. Adam asks all kinds of very uncomfortable questions to his patients all the time. But they expect it, right? He's a doctor. Number four, pastoral counseling requires that you not put yourself in the straitjacket of confidentiality. Remember, you're not a therapist, you're not a professional, you're a shepherd, a father, a pastor. And you'll never shepherd well if you bind yourself to agreements of confidentiality. Yes, be discreet. Yes, be wise. Yes, be considerate. Yes, have integrity. But no, make no promises of confidentiality. Because there are souls at stake. Not just the soul of the man or the woman you're counseling, but the souls of wives and husbands and children and brothers and sisters. There's souls at stake. Don't bind yourself with agreements of confidentiality. If you shackle yourself with agreements of confidentiality, you will not be able to work and to follow the threads and to do the work that, not, that must be done. Not just with that individual, but with the real mess that's going on. Fifth, pastoral counseling requires that you protect yourself from immorality. Brothers, you must be wise as a serpent, but harmless as a dove. Of the many pastors that I have personally known, and there are many, who fell into immorality and shipwrecked their ministries, each one fell into adultery through counseling. Each one of them. Each one of them. They did not guard their hearts. They did not protect themselves. They counseled women alone, and that is the perfect recipe for adultery. It's so obvious. It's so obvious. The damsel in distress, the wise, understanding counselor. You and I are not above that. We are men who have compassion for women in distress. If we weren't, we wouldn't be pastors, right? And that is the perfect recipe for adultery. Never a woman alone. Bring your wife, bring the secretary, bring somebody. Number six, pastoral counseling requires that you know when to shake the dust off your feet. Matthew 10, 14, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Matthew 7, 6, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Titus 3, 10 and 11, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. There is a time to be done with someone. There is a time to shake the dust off your feet. There is a time to go for it, knowing that this probably isn't going to end well. But this is what this person needs to hear, and they're probably going to leave, but... I have to do it. There was a woman uh, in our church, an older woman, who's been in our church here for years. Um, she had kind of attached herself to me. I mean, she's in her 60s, at least. She and her husband had kind of attached themselves to me, but especially her. I was, you know, I don't know what I was. She was my groupie, yeah. But, and she was the, uh, you know, the, the woman who was every 
you know, anytime there was a Bible study, she was in it. Uh, she wakes, wakes up in the morning, turns on Moody Radio. It's on until she goes to bed at night. You know, constantly learning, constantly learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Knew, knew the Bible better than most of us. But she wouldn't do things like, you know, respect her husband. Used her prayers when they would pray together to preach to him and manipulate him and, and uh, disrespect him while they're praying, right? And so I had dealt with them over and over. Tim had dealt with them over and over. And so finally... They're sitting, we're sitting in a room together, and um, she's telling me that, no, she doesn't respect her husband because he's not respectable. So she's off the hook. She doesn't need to respect him because, after all, he's not respectable. And I thought, well, (laughs) here we go. It's either now or never. And all the things that I've talked about, anger, yeah, past history, years of work, hours upon hours. You know, we were at their house for dinner the week before. She makes the most wonderful coconut cream pie, you know. At one point, I don't know if I was wrong for this or not. There's a Bible on the table, and I said, I took my hand, put it on the table, and threw the Bible across the room. (laughs) Because that's what she does. That's all she does. She claims to honor, but it's nothing. When When it pleases her, it's nothing to her. And so she's gone. We're a cult. I abused her. Maybe I did. Don't let your self-image as an understanding, gentle, sympathetic counselor keep you from obeying those commands. There is a time to be done with people. Shake the dust off. It will not be good for you or whoever it is you're counseling. And it will keep you from caring for sheep who actually want your care and who actually respond to it. Lastly, pastoral counseling requires that you pursue the sheep and not just wait till they come to you. Let me read a quote from that book that, um, that Lucas held up for us a minute ago from the Reformed pastor from Richard Baxter. Listen to this. We must be ready to give advice to inquirers who come to us with cases of conscience, especially the great case with which the Jews put to Peter and the jailer to Paul and Silas, what must we do to be saved? A minister is not to be merely a public preacher, but to be known as a counselor for their souls, as the physician, as the physician is for their bodies, and the lawyer for their estates, so that each man who is in doubts and straits may bring his case to him for resolution, as Nicodemus came to Christ, and as it was usual with the people of old to go to the priest whose lips must keep knowledge and at whose mouth they must ask the law because he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as the people have become unacquainted with this office of the ministry and with their own duty and necessity in this respect, it belongeth to us to acquaint them with it and publicly to press them to come to us for advice about the great concerns of their souls. We must not only be willing to take the trouble but should draw it upon ourselves by inviting them to come. What abundance of good might we do could we but bring them to this? And doubtless, much might be done in it if if we did our duty. How few have I ever heard of who have heartily pressed their people to their duty in this way? Oh, it is a sad case that men's souls should be so injured and hazarded by the total, total neglect of so great a duty and that ministers should scarcely ever tell them of it and awaken them to it. Were your hearers but duly sensible of the need and importance of this, you would have them more frequently knocking at your doors, 
and making known to you their sad complaints and begging your advice. I beseech you then, press them more to this duty for the future and see that you perform it carefully when they do seek your help. To this end, it is very necessary that you be well acquainted with practical cases and especially that you be acquainted with the nature of saving grace and able to assist them in trying their state and in resolving the main questions that concern their everlasting life or death. One word of seasonable, prudent advice given by a minister to persons in necessity may be of more use than many sermons. A word fitly spoken, says Solomon, how good is it? So what he's pressing us to do is to stand in our pulpits and tell people to come. Do we do we do that? We need to do that. But it's even more than that, isn't it? Not just stand there and say, hey, you know, you need to come. I'd be happy to talk to you. Would you come and talk to me? I'd be happy to talk to you. Come talk. No, we need to do more than that. We need to go after them. Luke 15, 4 and 5. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. Don't cultivate ignorance. Don't be passive. Don't wait for them to come to you. Many of us are happy to talk to someone if, they, if they'll come to us. We need to go chasing them down. You're a shepherd. God has given this awful but, but wonderful work to us. May he help us as we need it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us for this work. We confess to you, Lord, how, how lazy we are, how self-protective we are. How we would much rather be public and clean. Have mercy on us, Father. Forgive us. Call us back to being shepherds. And strengthen us for this work. And we pray that we would see fruit in it. Encourage us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.